Well, good morning. I woke up this morning and have a cold. Welcome. It is Eric Erickson here. The Eric Erickson Show across the state of Georgia. <clears throat> the phone number 877-97-ERIC, 877-973-7425. You get my really deep voice today. <laughs> okay. All right. We, we I, I wasn't going to start here, but now I have to start here. Doug Collins has decided to officially join the U.S. Senate race uh, against Kelly Leffler, uh, the incumbent Republican. He thinks he's going to get a primary out of this, uh, and uh, the current rules have no primary. It'll be a special election. I am already told this morning that the Democrats are rallying behind Ralph Warnock, the Raphael Warnock, the uh, minister at Ebenezer Baptist Church, highly progressive uh, Democratic minister in Atlanta. Uh, Stacey Abrams and others now trying to pressure Matt Lieberman to get out of the race, Ed Tarver to get out of the race. So it'll be two Republicans against one Democrat in November if this goes forward in that capacity. Uh, Collins is hoping, I think, and the Speaker of the House, David Ralston, is hoping, I think, that the governor will let a primary go through. And in particular, one of the things they want to do is by Collins vacating his seat in North Georgia, that'll incentivize some Republican state senators and state representatives to want to run for the seat. John Wilkerson, I believe it is, Wilkinson, uh, from up in that area, already announcing he's going to run for Doug Collins' seat. So surely he'll vote for having a primary instead of having to do a special election. Uh, the governor's team, meanwhile, is working overtime to try to kill this effort. Uh, now, let me give you the lay of the land here of what has happened. Brad Raffensberger, the Secretary of State, realized it would complicate getting ballots to our military personnel abroad uh, if the qualifying period for the special election didn't end until just a couple of weeks before the November election because they got to have all the ballots printed, shipped, and be able to be returned uh, by election day. That would complicate things dramatically. So Brad Raffensperger, the Secretary of State in Georgia, asked if they could move up the qualifications period uh, so that they could make sure that our soldiers and sailors would be able to get their ballots on time. Well, David Ralston and the Democrats and, and um, what, what's his name? Bob Trammell, the House Minority Leader in Georgia. Bob Trammell uh, has openly spoken about this and he's talked about it to the, the media that Bob Trammell thinks that the Democrats have a better chance of winning if they can consolidate their field and have one candidate against Leffler and one candidate against David Perdue. Under the current rules, all the Democrats running against Leffler will appear on the ballot together with her. And if she gets over 50% of the vote, she wins outright. Otherwise, if she gets a majority of the vote, she's in a runoff with whichever other candidate gets more votes. And that hurts the Democrats. It crowds the field and it starves all the Democrats of cash and attention. It also hurts the Democrat running against David Perdue because there will be a very crowded field of Democrats. Well, Bob Trammell, the House Minority Leader in Georgia, worked with David Ralston to hijack House Bill 757. House Bill 757 is the legislation. It was entered by Barry Fleming, the chairman of the Judiciary Committee, to move up qualifying. And they've decided to fundamentally rewrite election law in Georgia, where special elections will now have primaries. That changes it to benefit the Democrats because now they'll be able to pare down all of the Democrats running against uh, Kelly Loeffler. And it helps Doug Collins, who's a longtime loyal friend to David Ralston. 
And despite all Ralston scandals and whatnot, uh, he very clearly wanted to help Doug Collins despite his denials. It was amazing to me yesterday to listen to some of the Atlanta media say, oh, the speaker says this has nothing to do with anything. Oh, baloney. Everybody knows it. Uh, if it had nothing to do with anything other than conforming rules, why did they try to rush it through and not tell anyone in advance? Hmm? Uh, why was it a secret until the last minute? So they want to change the rules now to give a primary so that, that uh, Leffler and Collins can go one-on-one. The governor's not going to allow this. The governor will veto it. And the reason the governor's going to veto it is rather commonsensical. The election has started for the special election, and the governor doesn't believe you can change the rules in mid-process. He thinks that would be bad for him, and he's right. Uh, everyone went in knowing this would be a jungle primary, and now suddenly they're going to rewrite the rules so it's not a jungle primary. That's rewriting the rules. That, that That's dirty. Uh, and we got enough dirtiness in politics. The governor's not going to do it. Well, what the Collins camp and the Ralston camp are hoping is that there will be enough state senators with ambitions to run for Congress that they will over help them override the governor's veto. I don't think that's going to be likely. I really don't. Uh, we'll find out. The governor's team is scrambling to, to tamp down this rebellion against his authority. That's the other thing here is it puts the governor in a terrible bind. Uh, at a time the party in Georgia needs real unity, it really does divides the Republican Party. Meanwhile, you've got Stacey Abrams and Chuck Schumer now behind closed doors pressuring all the Democrats to get out of the race in favor of Ralph Warnock uh, and unite the Democrats uh, while Doug Collins is coming in, divides the Republicans. Now, I, I got to tell you this, full disclosure. I really like Doug Collins. He is a really good guy, and he is a really good conservative. Uh, the fact that Doug Collins went on Fox News this morning to make his announcement uh, is an indicator that he intends to cash in on his celebrity status tied to the president's impeachment and support of the, president's from the president from the Judiciary Committee. That's smart politics on his part. He goes on national television, uh, rallies the flag rallies the base, builds up his name ID while Kelly Leffler is still a relative unknown, and, and he's able to get money into the state. There will be some outside groups that also pour money in for uh, Doug Collins as well. But Leffler has deep pockets. She can largely self-fund the race, and she probably will self-fund the race uh, to to beat Collins and rapidly define him. Can, I, just, I need to pause here. I need to go on a little bit of a tangent here, and I don't, I don't want to hurt anybody's feelings. But can we all acknowledge that the debut ads for Kelly Leffler are not good? On my evening radio show yesterday, someone called in and said uh, she's got the personality in these ads of a bowl of soggy cereal. They're not good. And she's going to have to show some personality. Here's where Doug Collins has two advantages on Kelly Leffler. Collins is charismatic. And... He's also well-known. And if you're charismatic and you're well-known, you have positive name ID, you can go far. And, and as long as you keep up your positive name ID, you don't have to have as much money. You know, typically in politics, you think the person with the most money wins. And while that tends to be true, it's because that money is deployed to build up your positive name ID. Doug Collins already has very high positive name ID. Conservatives already know him. Conservatives already like him. And, and many of them wanted Collins to begin with. You will see a conservative split in Georgia. It will put people in a very difficult position uh, between those who back Governor Kim and Kelly Leffler and those who back David Ralston and Doug Collins. It does put the president in a very difficult position here. Is he going to come out for Doug Collins, who is his friend, or is is he going to come out for the woman who uh, votes to acquit him in impeachment? 
not a not a good move uh, to put the president in. It's going to be interesting to see if the president keeps his mouth shut. I think if he had to pick, he would come out for Doug Collins, and that would hurt Kelly Loeffler for sure. Uh, but maybe he will keep his mouth shut. There is a lot of pressure behind the scenes for the president either to come out for Loeffler or not say anything, which in and of itself is coming out for Loeffler. The ultimate problem here, though, is what this does for the Georgia Republican Party. The Georgia Republican Party does not have a lot of money. Uh, David Schaefer, the chairman of the Republican Party, has been working very hard behind the scenes to raise money for the party. Uh, but uh, the party still doesn't have a lot of money. There were a number of lawsuits against the party that they lost. Uh, they had a, a number of settlements they had to make, a, another number of other claims. So they don't have a lot of money. On top of that, the Democrats are going to unite around Ralph Warnock. So he's going to have a lot of money. He'll have a lot of outside money. And the Republicans will be divided on the Senate field. The other thing that will happen is you will have a uh, situation where the House of Representatives only has a 15-seat margin between the uh, Democrats and the Republicans. And so you're going to have to spend money there to shore up some of the Republican seats and potentially take back some seats from the Democrats. So money's not going to go there. That's going to go to the Senate race. Collins getting in deprives other key races of money they need to win. Collins getting in doesn't just deprive those races of money, but deprives races from out of state for money. Doug Collins getting into the race instead of just waiting for two more years when Leffler will be on the ballot again. Collins getting in now will ensure that some conservatives that are loyalty to Collins and the president pour money into his race instead of pouring it into other races to shore up Republicans or help Republicans take back the House of Representatives or to secure the Senate. On top of that, it badly divides the Republican Party in Georgia. People are already fighting. I'm already seeing it online. People are already fighting over this. People are already blaming the governor. Um, it, this this potentially harms the governor and creates bad blood in the run-up to 2022 as well, when we know Abrams is going to run again on a unified front. None of this is very smart. Uh, the, the National Republican Senatorial Committee has come out and called Doug Collins' move selfish. They're going to back Kelly Leffler. But here's again, this is another problem. Collins getting in means they're going to back her and they're going to back her. It's what they do. They are an incumbent protection racket. They will back Kelly Leffler. Uh, that will then deprive other races of money. And there's no reason for Leffler to step aside because she's the incumbent senator now. But it does make it more difficult for her to expand her base of voters. She's going to have to shore up the right now. It puts her in a very difficult position, and she's going to have to navigate very carefully with her team. She has hired Billy Kirkland. Billy Kirkland was the campaign manager to David Perdue. He's also one of Vice President Pence's old right hands. Uh, so there gives you a, a White House connection there uh, that might not have otherwise had for Kelly Loeffler, which will give her a bit of an advantage. But this whole thing is a mess, ultimately. I, I, I Listen, I texted Doug Collins this morning. I won't tell you anything out of turn. Uh, I told him I wish he hadn't have done this, uh, that it will divide the party when it needs to be united, deprive other races of funds, but he's a great guy, and I wish him well. Uh, Godspeed in this endeavor. Um, I, I'm happy to have him on and let, let him make his case. I'm happy to have Kelly Leffler on to let her make her case. But we don't need to dance around the fact that this does have other uh, electoral implications beyond the two of them, depriving other races of money. Now, I, I, I maintain that one of the big issues here is is the Speaker of the House working with the Democrats to rewrite this rule. They want to force primaries because they want to help Doug Collins, which is understandable, but they also want to help the Democrats. 
They want to not have a jungle primary in case they can't get Lieberman and Tarver and the others out of the race. And that legislation needs to die, frankly. Uh, House Bill 757 is what will fundamentally upend this race. It needs to die. Uh, and perhaps we can salvage this thing for the Republicans, but House Bill 757 needs to die first. Uh, and I would encourage you all to text the word ARMY to 33777 and get into the action portal and tell your state representatives to kill House Bill 757. Barry Fleming, the author of House Bill 757, yesterday voted against it. Um, yeah, he authored it, and now he's voted against it. Why? Because it, the Democrats, along with the Speaker of the House, hijacked the legislation to put in a primary in a special election for the Democrats. Uh, that wasn't a smart move, changing the rules in advance. The governor's going to have to veto this legislation if it doesn't die. And again, uh, this will just split open the Republican Party. That is the biggest problem with Doug Collins running right now, is the GOP has mostly united right now, and this will split it. But that's all part of the method to the madness of, of David Ralston doing this. The Speaker of the House is able to stay in power by dividing the Republicans and relying on some Democratic support to shore him up. Uh, doing this divides the Republican Party. It splits the Republican Party. It makes it harder for Republicans to focus on the problems with the Speaker. It allows the Speaker to stay in power. The Speaker's no fool. He knows what he's doing here. He's a smart man. He's a corrupt man, but he's a smart man. And this really has nothing to do with advancing Republicans or helping Doug Collins, it has everything to do with shoring up uh, the speaker's support in, and by dividing the conservative base. But dividing the conservative base makes it more likely that we lose seats. It makes it more likely we lose uh, seats in the state Senate. It makes it more likely we lose seats in the state house. It makes it more likely we lose these other seats. Th think about what Doug Collins doing now does. There's an open seat in the 7th. There's now an open seat in the ninth. There's an open seat in the 14th. Uh, they're trying to take back the six. You've got David Perdue on the ballot, the president on the ballot, and Kelly Leffer on the ballot. Collins entering means that there's going to now have to be money spent in the 14th. There's going to have to be money spent in the ninth. In addition to the money spent in the seventh to hold it and money spent in the sixth to take it back. And in addition to all the other money that's going to be spent on the Senate. He His entry drives up the costs for the Republican Party at a time the Republicans need to count every dollar and save every penny they can, and they're not going to be able to do it now. Um, I, I like Doug Collins, but I think this was a mistake. I, I do not intend to blow up Doug Collins. He's a good man. He's got a good conservative record, and he would make a good senator. But him doing this now, it's not good for the party. It's not good for their finances. It's not good for party unity, and it's not good for the president's reelection in Georgia when you have a organized, united Democratic front around a progressive black Democrat who can drive up Democratic turnout in 2020 at a time the Republicans would rather focus on other states. Now they're going to have to focus on Georgia in ways they otherwise wouldn't have to. That's going to hurt the GOP all over again. I really think Doug Collins should have thought this through a little better. I know he was being encouraged by others to run. But this is going to hurt the GOP. I really do like oh, hey, listen, I've got everything rerouted on, on my system here, so I can't go to break yet because all of my sounds are screwed up. Isn't that funny? Um, one more thing on the Collins front, and I do want to reiterate this very seriously. Doug Collins actually is a very good guy, and I don't want anybody calling this program to trash Doug Collins. Uh, 
Uh, if you want to call in and you want to talk about this, you're more than welcome to 877-97-ERIC, 877-973-7425. But I like Doug Collins. I don't want to trash Doug Collins. I wish he hadn't have done this. I think it hurts the GOP. I want to be honest with you with how I feel on this and what I think about this and, and what I've said to him. I'll tell you publicly what I've said to him. But he is a good man, and there's no reason to get into character assassination. And there is an upside to Doug Collins running that we should explore when we come back. It is Eric Erickson here. The phone number is 877-97-ERIC, 877-973-7425. And again, I, I encourage you to text the word ARMY to 33777. In addition to being able to sign up for activist lists, you'll get back a link uh, in a reply text message. If you click it, you'll be able to tell the Georgia House, your member of the Georgia House, they need to scuttle this plan by Speaker Ralston and the House Democrats to, to co-op this legislation in order to to make it easier for the Democrats to rally around the candidate. Uh, it, that's, it's, it's, it's not a good thing that the Speaker and the Democrats are openly collaborating together with uh, behind the governor. And, you know, one other thing here, I, I, I will get back into this later. I, there's a lot of other stuff going on. I've got Hogan Gidley coming up as well. A friend of mine works for the president. One of the deputy uh, press secretaries wants to talk about uh, the president's agenda. Uh, at the bottom of this hour, he'll join me. But it, one of the big issues here is uh, the amount of money that's going to have to be spent in and also... The open defiance by the speaker against the conservative governor elected by the state. David Ralston was not elected statewide. He was elected in Blue Ridge and, and Republicans in the House have put him in a position uh, and he's going to be a liability to them. And he's challenging the governor. Now, House speakers in Georgia tend to, to challenge governors. But what's so unique here is, is he never really challenged Nathan Deal. He's challenging the conservative governor. And in challenging the conservative governor, what he's trying to do is help the Democrats. And for the life of me, I can't understand why House Republicans are going along with their Republican speaker uh, helping the House Democrats. Uh, that Again, text ARMY to 33777 and, and tell the House Republicans they need to not be collaborating with the House Democrats in Georgia to make it easier for them to pick up a U.S. Senate seat. That's what the speaker's doing. And this is going to throw everything into disarray in what everyone thought would be a calm legislative session. You never see things like this coming. Uh, and having this level of collaboration between the speaker and the Democrats is a bad thing. I, I got to tell you as well that I think that Leffler is going to need to improve. And this is the upside of Doug Collins getting into the race. If we can be honest about it, uh, Kelly Leffler's debut ads to boost her name ID, maybe boosting her name ID, uh, but they don't come across great. She comes across as very stiff, uh, very wooden, not a, not a warm personality, not a dynamic or charismatic person, and Doug Collins does. And the upside of Collins doing what he's doing, if we're honest about it, is that it's going to force Kelly Leffler onto her A-game. She has been able to go smooth and go slowly right now, and Collins is going to force her to become a better candidate. Uh, either she's going to become a better candidate or she's going to lose. And she's got to understand that. She's got to know that. Um, and uh, Collins knows that as well. It's actually a, a rather big issue that they're going to have to deal with on the Leffler team. I have not been impressed with her rollout. I get why they're doing it, and I get it's to build name ID, 
But when you're building name ID and and as again as a as a caller called onto my radio show last night, you got the personality of a bowl of soggy cereal. That that's not a good way to to get your name out there. She's going to have to improve, and Collins necessarily will force her to improve, and that's not a bad thing actually. That's one of the upsides of him getting into this race is it's going to force her to do it expeditiously. Now, that being said, she can't do it yet because she's stuck on the floor of the United States Senate uh, siding with the president. And so the president probably doesn't want to weigh in on this race until she's voted to acquit him. And then it puts him in an awkward position again. This this whole thing just puts everybody in awkward positions. You know, I, I, I got to say there is a interesting contrast it's just a reminder that life goes on frankly and in washington these days where the democrats are upset that they didn't get invited to a signing ceremony on the usmca the the united states mexico canada trade agreement and while they're impeaching the president of the united states they're they're upset they didn't get a a warm and friendly invite from the white house what what were they expecting Uh, but life does go on legislation is still passing now it, it slowed down with the impeachment trial to a degree but uh, the president was able to sign the trade agreement, and life is still going on. And I, I kind of agree with Senator Tom Cotton. In fact, I, I've made this point several times. This is Tom Cotton uh, yesterday on Fox. So, Tucker, the Chinese government has a history of dishonesty and incompetence, not yes. only in general, but specifically related to infectious diseases. Uh, look at what happened with SARS in 2003. China is not acting right now like a government that has control of this outbreak. As you mentioned, right. Hong Kong has slashed travel from the mainland. China currently has more than 50 million of its own people in quarantine. That is more than the population of our West Coast combined. And China has canceled school indefinitely. No matter what they say, China's history and more importantly, their actions in the last few days tell us that this is a severe outbreak that they do not have close to getting under control yet. Yes. And uh, while this goes on and while we're concerned about it, I suspect in two weeks we're still going to be talking about the coronavirus and we'll no longer be talking about impeachment. Life will go on. People will forget impeachment ever happened to begin with. The news cycle moves so fast. There are probably going to be Democrats in November outraged at the Democrats for not having impeached the president, totally having forgotten that it happened. Uh, Now, uh, joining me from the White House, uh, Hogan Gidley. Hogan, how are you? I'm doing great, Eric. How are you? I'm doing well. Thanks very much for for getting on with me here this morning. I I was saying before you got on that it is a a reminder that life goes on in Washington. The president is signing now the USMCA, even as the impeachment trial is going on, that that things still get done up there. Well, you know this, Eric, better than most. But you see the juxtaposition of what we are doing versus what they are doing. Go back just uh, last week. Signing a historic trade deal with China, opening up markets that we thought would never be open again, that we were told would never be open again. And now we're doing business with China, not to mention the Japan deal before that, South Korea before that, and then the restructuring of USMCA, of course, the old NAFTA. And they're walking over articles of, uh, of impeachment, which are illegitimate because they don't even allege a crime. And we're signing trade deals that affect real Americans. Move forward to, to, uh, to this week. Um, he's doing USMCA, releasing a Middle East peace plan. They're still tinkering around with this illegitimate sham impeachment hoax. So time and time again, you're beginning to see since this election, and I think it was the, what was it, nine days, nine hours, whatever it was, right after uh, the inauguration, the swearing in of this president, they talked about 
it's time to impeach him. I believe it was the Washington Post or some such publication Mm -hmm. now pointing out the fact that that's what they've been doing. And and Nancy Pelosi even herself admitted for two and a half years she's been working on this impeachment. So I think they're really exposed. They're really vulnerable uh, because the people now see there's one group, one party, one president working on the behalf of the American people trying to make their lives better, and one focused on their own selfish political gain. Well, you know, I thought it was very interesting uh, polling out of Maine this morning that sixty uh, percent of Maine voters are tired of this and want to deal with the issue at the ballot box, uh, and fifty-six percent of them don't hold it against Susan Collins. Uh, very just in in time and time again, we're seeing this as much as the media is hyping some of these polls about impeachment. The country really is divided, and even Diane Feinstein yesterday saying that maybe we should just give this nine months and let the voters decide. Well, that's right. Uh, I think that's the way you handle it. And and, and I think uh, the defense team that the president put together with Jay Sekulow and, and Pat Cipollone and Alan Dershowitz and others have articulated just an incredible um, you know, ironclad case here. I mean, the president said nothing wrong, and, and what he did was constitutional, it was legal, it was lawful, and it was on behalf of the American people. And, uh, you know, trying to make sure that the money spent in this country goes to um, other areas that, you know, aren't corrupt. Also, he wants to make sure other countries pay their fair share. In fact, President Zelensky on the call himself said, yes, you guys are the ones footing the bill for all this, and other countries don't pay nearly as much. You've seen this as a common thread. He's done this with, with um, uh, NATO, for example, getting them you know, hundreds of billions of more dollars that other countries pledged but never paid. I mean, the president's kind of said, look, we, we've been writing all these checks, and, and, and the bills do, guys. We're not going to be the ones footing it for the rest of the world. We're not going to be, as the president likes to say, the world's pick bank anymore. And so I think the American people are sick and tired of, of the politics. And we go through this every cycle. You see it all the time, uh, Eric. And, and this president, this, uh, uh, this impeachment process um, has, has exposed what the Democrats are about. But when you see the defense they put on, first of all, on the merits and the facts, the president's done nothing wrong. Here's the constitutional um, protections, uh, the, 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 what the president can and can't do under the Constitution. The president's done uh, none of the things you can't do and everything you can. And then second is the process itself was rigged from the beginning. I mean, 17 witnesses for the Democrats, we got zero. We couldn't introduce evidence. We couldn't cross-examine their witnesses. The whole thing was a scam. And now we see it going to the Senate, and you see the contradictory arguments where the House is saying, we have overwhelming evidence. This is a done deal. And then saying, nope, we need more witnesses. We need more time. I mean, the whole thing is a joke. I think the American people are beginning to see this. And and look, it's time to talk about – is your life better now than it was four well, years ago? You know, I, I wanted yes. to ask you about that. We've got this polling now that's come out from Gallup, and, and by every measure, Americans are saying that, yes, as a matter of fact, our lives are improved economically, improved, income has improved, jobs have improved. Uh, it, it, there are very few measures where anyone thinks there's any sort of decline. And, and I also note that even though impeachment's going on, the president's uh, job approval rating is at an all-time high. It is, and it's because uh, you know they see him working, and they see the Democrats playing politics. And every every measurable metric, as you just point out, um, you can point to and say we're doing much better now than we were before. And honestly, I think a lot of that had to do with the holidays. This is my own like personal thought here. Everyone goes home and talks to their family around the holidays. Well, remember under the Barack Obama administration, massive unemployment and other things. I think the outlook was pretty grim. 
now people go home for the holidays and they say, hey, we're making more money, we're saving more money, we're spending more money. My friends, my relatives have job prospects they didn't have before. Wages are increased for the first time in 30 years. Jobs coming back to this country. I have more money in my pocket. Those conversations are happening around Thanksgiving and around Christmas with family members and extended family members. And people see this has been a, a, a wild, historic success. And the more people talk about it and the more people actually feel it around their own kitchen tables and in their own households, I think it looks really good for the president. Well, I want to ask you about the rally last night. Speaking of things looking good for the president, there, there were some stunning contrasts between the, the Joe Biden crowd and the president's crowd where people were lining up 72 hours in advance. I saw Kellyanne's uh, tweet yesterday showing the crowds lined up well in advance. Uh, this president is still, despite uh, what the media might say, able to, to generate massive crowd enthusiasm in a place like New Jersey that's not exactly friendly territory to Republicans either. You're right. Um, I, you know, I saw a statistic that said the networks from September to January, for example, um, only talked about these are the networks. Now, this isn't MSNBC, CNN to the world. This is ABC, NBC, uh, CBS. They talked about the economy from September to uh, January, eight minutes. They talked about impeachment or Ukraine, 900 minutes. OK, <laughs> so clearly they are out of touch with what the American people think and believe. And when you look at the crowds that show up for this president, 175,000 RSVPs and tickets requested for this broke all kinds of records. And he usually gets upwards of 50, 60, 70,000, 80,000 per event. This was massive. And as you just said, they didn't just show up. They were there in sub-freezing temperatures for days, spending the night out in the cold, waiting to get in uh, to see this president and thank him for all that he has done. You've been to the Iowa caucuses many times. You've seen a lot of candidates who may sound good on paper, who may look good. But their own supporters, you know, wouldn't walk across the, the, the parking lot to caucus for them if you gave them all a free Gatorade and a golf right. cart ride to the, to, the, to, the, to the voting station. They will crawl across broken glass for this president because he is shaking up this town and he is you know, draining the swamp and he is making their lives better. They appreciate that. They want that. They crave it. And someone now doing that to the Washington establishment, the Beltway bureaucrats, all the political pundits out there, you know, wagging their tongues at this president, he's affecting the lives of the American people in a positive way and they appreciate it. Well, before you get out of here, I, I want to go back to the USMCA. How does it change compared to NAFTA? I know the, the, there was a lot of bipartisan buy-in on some of the changes, but uh, for, for the layman out there who knows knows what NAFTA is and, and wonders where USMCA goes. What is the president's vision for MCA as opposed to NAFTA? Well, one of the things it does is it allows more manufacturing to occur in this country. It demands larger percentages of cars and automo- uh, automobile manufacturing actually to be within the continental United States so that you know, you, you can't go outside this country to Canada or, or, or um, Mexico and get cheaper parts, cheaper labor, and then put together the car. You have to build it in this country, which is one of the reasons we've seen hundreds of thousands of dollars, or jobs rather, in the manufacturing sector come back to this country. Uh, it also made sure enforcement uh, in some of the countries were, were t- toughened and stricken, uh, were, were made uh, more strict, meaning um, – you couldn't abuse workers in these in, in Mexico, for example. You had to make sure that you paid them a living wage, um, that they were working, um, you know, to build these cars in, in good conditions, that type of thing. And also, as far as opening up markets for for ag products with Canada and the trees. 
that's something that there were some some taxes and some back and forth with this country that, that really didn't benefit the American worker. And so um, the president worked with them to kind of lower some of those uh, taxes and, and, and money changing hands there so that we could actually benefit more. Our tree farmers could, could move into Canada, uh, move their product into Canada easier and vice versa. Those are things that weren't in NAFTA that are in this um, and hundreds of thousands of new jobs uh, because of it as well. So, I mean, this is this is a, a brand new uh, era in, in trade deals and trade negotiations because for so long, and you know this, how many politicians come through and say we want free and fair trade? Well, the free trade always comes. Mm-hmm. It's the fair trade that really rarely follows. And this president said, no, we're all going to be fair. We don't want other countries to fail. We just don't want them to succeed at the expense of the American worker, the American business, the American industry. And so that's what this deal went to go uh, to, to try and fix. And he's done that with so many other deals. He loves bilateral trade deals. I mentioned with the one with Japan before. When he was working on the first trade deal with China – and they tried to change the deal at the last minute. The president walked away and said, fine, I'll do it somewhere else. Goes to Japan and gets them to buy a lot of the ag products that China wasn't going uh, – ended up not buying. But then he ended up getting the deal with China anyway. So this whole thing has been rapid-fire succession of good trade deal after good trade deal after good trade deal that are all designed to benefit America first. Not America alone, but America first. And I think that's what a, a lot of the, the people out there uh, across this country are seeing and feeling. Well, listen, uh, thank you for that explanation. That's actually good. I didn't didn't realize that about the, the car parts and, and whatnot in this country. So thank you. And uh, thanks for taking the time out. And, and you're always welcome back, Hogan. It's actually good to talk to you. We hadn't talked in a while. And uh, I, I see you on TV and you're doing good work and, and, and doing the work that needs to be done right now. So I appreciate it. Well, I got to be honest. I, I missed the South, and I missed miss miss your neck of the woods down in Georgia. But uh, uh, you know, I think I'm, I'm I'm really enjoying it up here, and, and being working for this president and doing things on on behalf of the American people that actually are, are you know doing some good. Um, you know, it, it it's a it's a great feeling every day, and I'm just working hard. And, and whatever I can do for you guys, let me know. I'd love to come back on, and and you know, my line's always open. Absolutely, Hogan Gidley. Thanks very much. Thank you. Uh, Hogan Gidley, he's the deputy uh, White House press secretary, the principal deputy White House press secretary. You see him on Fox a lot. Uh, he and I actually got to meet, gosh, uh, he was working for Mike Huckabee uh, years. It was, it was 2012, he, 2016, 2012, uh, started, uh, got to know Hogan uh, from South Carolina. Great guy uh, now in Washington helping this president. Uh, and he's the guy who goes on Fox News often. Or on, even on CNN to defend the president, and glad to have him stop by on impeachment in the USMCA. It, it really is just this odd thing, is it not, that the, the national media has completely hit the brakes on covering anything other than impeachment, and yet the president is still deregulating, the president is still writing new regulations, uh, defending pro-life organizations, faith-based groups, having rallies, uh, the, the trade agreement being signed, all of this stuff continuing to happen. We got the coronavirus continuing to spread around the nation, and yet the media is fixated on impeachment. And I want to bring you up to speed on that. And, and the big headline this morning, Mitch McConnell lacks the votes to block witnesses. There's actually more to the story. I'll fill you in on it when we come back. It is Eric Erickson here. Uh, your phone calls are welcome at 877-97-ERIC, 877-973-7425. 
I want to spend a few moments with you uh, bringing you the latest on impeachment. There is a story. It is actually the headline story of the New York Times, the Washington Post, CNN. I uh, saw it on the Drudge Report, uh, the BBC. Mitch McConnell lacks the votes to block impeachment. Um, interestingly enough, uh, the story is not quite accurate. You should not be surprised that the story is not quite accurate. Uh, what actually is going on with McConnell? Well, he hasn't convinced that the four senators to know about are Susan Collins, Lisa Murkowski, Lamar Alexander, and Mitt Romney. The four of them would like to hear from John Bolton, uh, possibly hear from John Bolton. And that's what you need to understand here, possibly hear from John Bolton. When I say possibly because their minds aren't made up either, and they're going to today is going to be the Q&A session on the floor of the of the Senate. We'll get into this more after we get back from commercial break. But uh, one of the things they want to do is ask senators questions and explain. Uh, I, I would not be surprised if one of them asked, why should we or should we not hear from John Bolton? And uh, the Republican position is that this sets a dangerous precedent. Now, that we need to delve into this this uh, impeachment witness question because the media is reporting this. Of uh, 75% say witnesses need to be heard. That's not actually what the questions ask in the polling, if you actually look at the polls. Uh, should the Senate consider testimony from witnesses? The Senate has now considered the testimony from 14 witnesses. Uh, this is testimony that was entered into the record. It was also testimony that was played during the House impeachment manager's opening statements. I suspect if you went back and you asked people, uh, should did you know that the Senate considered the testimony of 14 witnesses? People would have no idea, but they actually have. On top of that, when you actually delve into the polling, you know who supports calling witnesses? Trump supporters. Why do Trump supporters support calling witnesses? They want to hear from Hunter Biden. And in fact, uh, Lindsey Graham and others have come out now and said that uh, there is enough support within the Republican conference to subpoena the whistleblower, to subpoena um, to subpoena Hunter Biden and to subpoena one of the Democratic staffers who worked with the whistleblower, possibly even Adam Schiff. They've, they've got the votes for that. So the question is, uh, are they actually going to have witnesses? And my thinking on this is they probably still aren't. In fact, in the White House, the, the current thinking, based on every conversation I've had, is that they're still going to they're still leaning on not having witnesses. They still believe that it is possible to get out of this without the White House having to deal with witnesses, without the Senate having to deal with witnesses. They still think these senators are persuadable. As I mentioned to Hogan Gidley, who was with me in the last hour or in the last half hour, the one of the bigger situations here is that the White House believes fundamentally that Susan Collins can be persuaded. And they believe she can be persuaded in large part by polling showing that a majority of people in uh, Maine think that impeachment is a waste of time and we should be letting the people deal with it in November. Think about that one for a moment, if you will. They fundamentally believe at this moment, that in order for 
this to go forward in order to have a um, in, in order to to deal with the issue in Maine, the voters believe that they should be the ones to deal with it. The voters in Maine do not resent Susan Collins. In fact, 56% of voters hope that Susan Collins votes to wrap this thing up. Now, here's the thing. It's a National Republican Senatorial Committee polling, but the pollster is good. The polling is sound. Never, never buy in 100% to partisan polling, but when you look at the fundamentals of this poll, it actually looks pretty legit. Not a bad thing. Now, where where do, where does this go? Where do we go from here? Well, we're going to have the Q and A today. We'll get into a lot of these details when we come back. Uh, but they're going to be a Q and A today, and then tomorrow the Republicans are going to meet behind closed doors, and Mitch McConnell is going to try to get the votes. So you're hearing all these headlines. McConnell doesn't have the votes. That's true, but he doesn't have to have the votes until Friday. He's got two days to figure it out. Now. We need to move on a little bit because the president had a rally last night and he's pounding this message as well. While we are creating jobs and killing terrorists, the congressional Democrats are obsessed with demented hoaxes, crazy witch hunts, and deranged partisan crusades. It's all they know how to do. The do-nothing Democrats. They have spent the last three years And probably even before I came down on that beautiful escalator with our beautiful future First Lady. Trying to overthrow the last election, and we will make sure that they face another crushing defeat in the next election. We are going to have a victory that's even greater than 2016. Even greater than 2016, the victory will be, you know, the Democrats really are distracted by this impeachment stuff, and it has muddied the Democratic message. That, that again, goes back to this Leffler situation and Collins situation in Georgia, how the Democrats can unite behind a message in Georgia as they unite behind a candidate. Uh, on the national stage right now, the Democrats are still fractured, and the Republicans have a very unified message behind the president. And the Gallup polling shows most people actually do recognize the economy is doing really, really well right now. Why would we want to rock the boat with a Democrat in charge? We'll explore that when we come back. Hello and welcome. It is Eric Erickson here, the Eric Erickson Show across the state of Georgia. The phone number, if you want to be a part of the program, 877-97-ERIC, 877-973-7425 is the phone number. Thank you very much for joining me this morning. We got a ton of stuff we need to cover. Uh, I will get back into the Kelly Leffler, Doug Collins situation. Uh, you do want to stick around for that. Uh, I, I won't take you, take me long to get there. I want to get give you kind of a summation of the state of play and impeachment right now before we get back there. At the bottom of this hour, Stephen Gutowski is going to join me finally. Uh, you know, I'd, I'd wanted to have Stephen on last week. It was a priority for me to have him on, and then my schedule kind of went kablooey, and I had to, I had to cancel on him uh, to make an appointment that was a kind of a, a, a must-do appointment. Now, that is gone, and I can get him back, and, and SHOT Show is over where he was tied up last week, and that didn't give him a ton of schedule flexibility either. Um, and I want to talk to him about the, the state of play in Virginia and the nation on, on gun control laws right now. I, I know that's something a lot of people care about. Uh, my wife in particular, it's a big issue for her. She's been paying attention uh, a great deal to what's going on in Virginia. But uh, all that said, uh, everything happening right now, I I want to talk to you guys about the 
impeachment situation and we've got the Trump rally. First of all, you need to listen to Susan Collins. Senator, on impeachment, are there four, right, are, right now, are there four Republicans who will be voting to have witnesses at the trial? I don't know the answer to that question yet. We will hear the the president's attorneys complete their presentation today. Then tomorrow and Thursday will be an opportunity for those of us who have been listening to the case to submit questions to both sides through the Chief Justice. Those will be written questions. I've already compiled a great number of them. I've got to winnow down my list. And then on Friday, we're likely to have the vote on witnesses. I do know that but for the efforts that four of us made to ensure that that vote would occur, that it's unlikely that we would have had that opportunity. So I'm pleased that every senator will have the opportunity to vote on whether or not additional witnesses and documents are necessary. Um, it is very likely that I'm going to conclude that, yes, we do need to hear from witnesses. It is very likely to conclude that, yes, we do need to hear from witnesses. But are they actually going to do that? I don't know that they actually are. And the people in Washington, D.C. right now aren't sure that they actually are. And the reason none of them are actually sure that they actually are is because they, they're they trying to get this over with as quickly as possible. They're trying to make sure that they can wind this down by Friday evening. They don't want to stretch it into next week. And, and here's, the, here's the private thinking of some of the Democrats. They know that he's going to be found not guilty. They don't have the votes for him to be found guilty. So why not let them go to the Iowa caucuses? Why not get this over with? What they may wind up doing if they want to have witnesses is see if they can squeeze them all in, maybe work on a Saturday so the Democrats can get to Iowa on Monday, the Iowa caucuses on Monday. And they would really like to do that. Now, Bernie Sanders, of course, is in the lead. We'll get into the Bernie Sanders polling here in a little bit. Uh, Sanders is in the lead, and uh, it, that's that's going to matter for them greatly moving forward as to um, what do they do with Bernie? Are they actually able to get Bernie to, to stand down? Are they actually able to... Get Bernie to 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 implode. I mean, they're they're not going to get him to stand down. And uh, Democratic establishment types are starting to get very worried about Bernie Sanders. It reminds me very much of 2016 with Donald Trump. If if you'll allow the the president clearly was making headway with a lot of voters who were coming into the Republican Party. You 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 probably don't remember this, but a lot of the president's initial voters were not actually Republican voters. There were people who were inspired to get into politics by Donald Trump, and they were very. Loyal Loyal to him, he didn't win the Iowa caucus. Ted Cruz did, uh, but then the president picked up steam and, and started rallying a segment of the Republican Party that really hated the Republican Party, and in so doing, was able to get these people to engage for him, with him, uh, on his behalf, and around the country they went. 
and he won. Indisputably, the president of the United States won. And that could happen with Bernie Sanders. And one of the reasons that President Trump won is they had this phenomenon uh, where people were really divided. They, They really weren't sure where to go, how to go, what to do, how to stop him. And they couldn't unify. And because they couldn't unify, the president was able to sweep away and win. And the Democrats right now are divided in Iowa. They're divided in New Hampshire. The only people who aren't divided in the Democratic primary, interestingly enough, are black voters. And black voters are overwhelmingly for Joe Biden. Frankly, that is why Joe Biden is still going to be the Democratic nominee. Joe Biden is going to be the guy that rallies black voters. And black voters are disproportionate. Once you get out of New Hampshire and Iowa and Nevada and you get into Super Tuesday, black voters are disproportionately represented in in the Democratic Party and they are all on Joe Biden's team. They love Joe Biden. So what does Bernie do? Well, here's the problem. Bernie's not going to get out. And the moderates who are backing Buttigieg and Klobuchar and Bloomberg and Steyer, they're not going to go to Bernie. They're going to go to Biden. And as much as Mike Bloomberg can pour money into the race, Mike Bloomberg isn't in those first states. Mike Bloomberg is going to be able to get uh, delegates. And frankly, it doesn't help Bloomberg. Bloomberg is out there saying that that his job is to stop Bernie from getting delegates. Well, he can't stop Bernie from getting delegates. He's stopping everybody else from getting delegates. Bernie's voters are loyal to Bernie. The arrogance of Mike Bloomberg to think that he can prevent Bernie Sanders from getting delegates is nonsense. The easiest thing that the Democrats could do would be to get out of the way for Joe Biden, but none of them want to do it. And they don't want to do it because privately many of them concede Biden is not left enough. He's not to the left enough. And while they're fracturing, you've got an incumbent president on a remarkably good economy. And he's now on the campaign trail. Let me play you some of the president from last night in New Jersey. Americans of all political beliefs are sick and tired of the radical, rage-filled left socialists. I never saw anything. What's going on in this country? What's going on in this country? The Democrat, really, the Democrat Party is the Socialist Party, and maybe worse. Voters are making a mess. Exodus from that party. And we are welcoming them to the Republican Party with wide open arms. With wide open arms. Democrats are going to have a real hard time if they can't unite very soon. Here's here's the president on immigration. This again, this is an issue that hurts the Democrats in the South in particular, even among Democratic voters. But on no issue have Washington Democrats more thoroughly betrayed the American people than the issue of immigration. Left-wing, radical politicians support deadly sanctuary cities. And remember, a sanctuary city is a jurisdiction that refuses to hand over criminal aliens that are in local law enforcement custody. Instead, they order them to be released into your community. What the hell is going on? What is going on? And once set loose, these criminal aliens are free to continue their crime spree 
against innocent Americans. Right here in New Jersey, your state's Democrat leaders have instituted sanctuary policies that result in dangerous predators being set free into your community. <sighs> yeah. Notice the crowd. That's a crowd in New Jersey. A crowd in New Jersey that is backing the president, and it was a massive crowd. As Hogan Gidley was on in the last hour, he said they had over 100,000 people who wanted to come. Had 175,000 RSVPs. Had people lining up 72 hours in advance. And the Democrats are convinced that everyone on their side sees uh, them and is right with them and agrees with them. But actually, there are a lot of blue-collar voters who are interested in voting Democrat who don't particularly care for the president, but they believe the immigrants are coming for their jobs and they're going to stay with President Trump because they think the Democrats are out to get their jobs. It's not just their jobs now either. It's health care. Washington Democrats have never been more extreme than they are right now. Frankly, they're crazy. These people are crazy. They're taking their cues from socialists like Bernie. Left-wing lawmakers are pushing a government takeover of health care that would strip 180 million Americans of their private health care plans, which many people like. The plans of every Democrat running for president would demolish the economy of New Jersey, where half a million new New Jersey workers are employed at some of the best and most innovative healthcare employment companies. We have them working at the companies, and we have people getting great health care. It's been so long. It's finally working, and they want to destroy it. The Republican Party will never let it happen. We are saving your health care while the Democrats are trying to take away your health care, take away your doctors, take away all of the good care that we fought. And we fought hard, and we're doing well, and now we're doing better. And by the way, sometime prior to the end of the year, we're putting in for a new middle-income tax cut, a very big one. But we're making health care better and much, much cheaper. We've done a great job in running it, and we've given you a lot of alternatives. We are protecting people with pre-existing conditions, and we always will, the Republican Party, pre-existing conditions. We saved it. We are stopping surprise medical billing and making everything transparent. That's a big deal. And that will take effect starting in about two months from now. Everything's transparent. You'll be able to see pricing. You'll be able to go and price other hospitals, other doctors. It's going to be an incredible thing. Nobody believes I was able to do it, but we did it. You know, regardless of what you think of the President of the United States, he actually does have a good economy. And the American people do believe that the Democrats are wrecking their health care. And the president actually is able to connect with people in a way that, that Joe Biden isn't. Uh, listen, uh, let's make, make no bones about it. When Joe Biden becomes the nominee, and I still think Joe Biden is going to be the nominee, he's going to be able to rally a lot of Democrats. But there will be Bernie Sanders supporters who are upset 
there will be Bernie Sanders supporters who who aren't really down with the idea of voting for Joe Biden. There will be Bernie Sanders supporters who uh, sit on the sidelines. There will be Elizabeth Warren supporters who aren't really for Joe Biden. But Biden will rally the bulk of the left, and Biden will also rally some Republicans who hate President Trump. He just will. But... The president has a base of people who will come out for him. We know from the data that some of the Bernie bros will come out for uh, President Trump. Ultimately, they they won't stick around for Joe Biden. They don't particularly care for Joe Biden. They, they don't even like Elizabeth Warren, even though she's a uh, progressive ideological soulmate to Bernie Sanders. They'll go for President Trump, and, and President Trump can generate the excitement of the crowd. Here's the data that the media is not talking about. The Democrats are overwhelmingly outraising Republicans, and that's very good for the Democrats, and the people with the most money tend to win. But the enthusiasm gap is notable right now. 95% of Republicans, according to, I think it's Pew. I think it's Pew, which is actually one of the best pollsters out there right now. I think it's 95% of Republicans say they're excited to vote for the president in November. And only 80% of Democrats are excited to vote for their nominee. Now, once they have a nominee, that number will shift. But there's a 15-point enthusiasm gap between the parties right now. And this is going to be a, a an election based on mobilizing the base and the presence on the campaign trail generating massive crowds. And the Democrats are still fighting. And Bernie Sanders is starting to give them the heebie-jeebies. And there are a lot of Democrats who will not rally around Bernie Sanders because he's too far left. And frankly, there is a lot of middle America that doesn't like Donald Trump that's going to look at Bernie Sanders and say, oh, what on earth are we? I almost said a bad word. What on earth are we going to do with this guy? It is Eric Erickson here. Don't forget, text the word army to 33777. Uh, we need to try to kill this uh, Democratic hijack in the state House of Representatives that they're the Speaker of the House working with the Democrats to give the Democrats a primary. Uh, and he sees this as helping Doug Collins and. It's actually going to undermine Republicans in the state by by taking resources from. Well, and now we've got so we'll have the 14th congressional district, which is open. We'll have the 7th congressional district, which is open. We're trying to take back the 6th congressional district in Georgia. And you've got now Doug Collins is ninth if he actually does go through with this. And, and Collins has said he's going to run. Uh, he made his announcement on Fox News this morning on Fox and Friends. I'm told he wanted to get on Hannity last night, but they, they bumped it because of impeachment. So he went on with Fox and Friends, which is good for it to go. Good for Doug Collins, honestly. Um, I, I'm not going to beat up Doug Collins. I, I, I wish he hadn't have done this for a variety of reasons, but he's a good guy, and he was smart to go on Fox and Friends to do this. Why? Uh, as much as the Leffler campaign will say that Doug Collins is ignoring Georgia media, the fact of the matter is most of the people who vote in the Republican primary are going to be Fox News watchers. And most of the people who will pay attention and vote Republican in the special election, which won't have a primary, are going to be Fox News watchers. And Doug Collins has a celebrity status as one of the president's chief defenders and has had that celebrity status for a while. So going on Fox News and announcing he's running for the U.S. Senate in Georgia to help the president is going to help him with fundraising. I suspect he's already got money flowing in from people who saw him on Fox this morning. And I suspect that he will be able to build his own name ID better than Kelly Leffler's doing right now. As I mentioned in the last hour, one of the upsides of Collins getting in, frankly, is that Leffler's going to have to up her game. Uh, her campaign ads are not very good. They're just designed to get her up and out there and get her name out there. And that's all well and good, but there are other ways to do it. And, and I think they probably need to do, they need to rethink the strategy for her. 
And I I, I, I don't want to listen he, he, between the two of them. I will probably wind up voting for Leffler as much as I like Doug Collins, and, and I will do so for this reason. Uh, I do not think it is good form for Collins to have done what he did. Uh, it puts the governor in a terrible position. It puts the Republicans in a terrible position. It gives the advantage to the Democrats at a time Republicans need to be unified. I really wish he hadn't have done it. And and as much as I like Doug Collins, I, I have a hard time thinking I'm going to reward him for dividing the Republican Party and uniting the Democratic Party. I think that's problematic. And I, I, I love the guy. I, I would love to see Doug Collins in the U.S. Senate. I wish he had waited until two years from now. You know, Leffler will be on the ballot in two years from now uh, as she tries to, to be her own elected official instead of filling out Johnny Isaacson's term. And that'd be the perfect time for him to do it. There would be a primary. He could he could make it about his record versus hers. Um, but I realize he didn't want her to have two more years to try to define herself. And this is a downside for Leffler. She's still a great unknown. And because Leffler is still a great unknown, a Collins has the opportunity to define her. And I suspect he will. Collins got a good team around him. Uh, they are going to undoubtedly try to define Kelly Leffler and do so very quickly. And she's been so flat-footed in her advertising thus far. If she doesn't turn it around very quickly and, and do something different other than the stare at the camera things and say, I'm Kelly Leffler and, and I am went to 4-H and I'm going to fight for the president. And it comes across as very, very stiff and scripted. And and it looks like she's reading a script and, and she's not comfortable with it. She's going to have to get comfortable with it. And Collins is going to have to, Collins will force her to get comfortable with it quickly. And we will find out uh, whether or not she actually is a good candidate. Because Doug Collins is a really good candidate. But this is fracturing the Republican Party in Georgia at a time that the Georgia Republican Party needs to be highly unified. And that is unfortunate. It is. When we come back, we got to shift gears. We got to talk about guns. Uh, Stephen Gutowski from the Washington Free Beacon is the only person on planet Earth I really trust when it comes to analyzing these uh, Second Amendment issues around the country. He went to Virginia. He interviewed people. His clips went viral. We played it here. He went to SHOT Show in Vegas. I want to talk to him about the state of play of the Second Amendment here in the country, Mike Bloomberg's race, what actually is going on in Virginia, and where do Second Amendment lovers go from here? Welcome back. It is Eric Erickson here across the state of Georgia, around the nation. The phone number, as the voice just said, 87797-ERIC. Don't forget, text the word ARMY to 33777. Uh, be a part of our conservative activist list. And also, you'll get a link back to uh, be able to get into our action center here very quickly and contact your state legislator. Tell them to kill House Bill 757, which would uh, set up a primary for the Democrats and help them have a competitive advantage in the special election. We you don't need that to happen in the state. Now, I promised you last week, I wanted to talk to my buddy Stephen Gutowski with the Washington Free Beacon about uh, gun rights and what happened in Virginia and, and the state of play with the Second Amendment here in the country. He is joining me by phone. Stephen, how are you? Hey, I'm doing well. How are you? I'm great. Thanks for doing this. Uh, sorry we weren't able to connect last week with the height of the Virginia stuff, but I, you know, this is an issue that I think I've mentioned to you my wife cares about very deeply, and she's been telling me what, what's happened in Virginia, what's happened in Virginia, and, and 
it seemed like there were a bunch of people fundraising off of fear of what might happen in Virginia, and we're not going to come out of this unscathed as people who support the Second Amendment, but it also doesn't look like all the super crazy proposals are going to pass, and figured I should let you educate it, myself and everybody else on this. Yeah, I mean, I feel like that's a pretty accurate description of, of how things are going here in Virginia. I mean, certainly um, those proposals, the, the more radical ones like, you know, confiscation of AR-15s and, and other similar firearms uh, were real proposals that uh, the governor backed for, I mean, really since last year, uh, the run-up to the election, and then they had put forth, uh, you know, a confiscation bill uh, after they won the election, after Democrats took control of uh, the legislature. Uh, so, the, the you know, the, the risks were certainly real. Um, and even now, there's a They've moderated their assault weapons ban to include, uh, you know, registration and grandfathering, but they still have uh, confiscation elements to that with, uh, you know, magazines that hold more than 10 rounds um, and trigger activators and silencers being made completely illegal to possess, even if you already own them. Um, But at the same time, you know, what's likely to pass is different than what is proposed, just as it is you know, everywhere in the country, there's often very radical bills that get proposed um, and never, never pass. Uh, It's unclear at this point exactly what will pass. um, But I think it's becoming less likely that uh, the the walked back version of the assault weapons ban will will pass because um, that hasn't have that hasn't even made it to the committee. Mm-hmm. Uh, hearing yet, um, and the, the session in Virginia is quite short. Um, you know, it ends in, in March, so uh, we'll, we'll see. I, I think you're more likely to get a universal background checks, which they already passed to the Senate. Um, there's four bills that pass this, and I think those are the most likely to pass. Universal background checks, the red flag bill, uh, one gun a month, with an exception for those who have um, concealed carry licenses, and then a uh, sort of a rollback of the state's preemption law as far as it, uh, uh, gun-free zones at local government buildings and sort of the permitted events like food, you know, food markets, things like that, farmers markets. Mm-hmm. Um, those are the most likely ones to actually make it into law. Well, I've noticed, and and you and I have chatted about this before, that uh, with the NRA seemingly in a a bit of disarray, there are a bunch of gun rights groups that seem like they've sprung up overnight, and and many of them strike me as uh, they're they're trying to raise money off of the fear of what might happen, and I don't see very many of them out there really trying to uh, persuade Democrats not to go down this road. I I guess some of them say they're raising money for lawsuits and whatnot, but it does kind of seem like this is happening at a moment where a lot of the Second Amendment advocacy groups are in in a bit of disarray. Yeah, I mean, you know, that's that's sort of always been around um, in gun rights and then just in politics generally. Right. Um, uh, As as you know, there's always groups that that pop up that are um, on, you know, further on the fringes that aren't really going to be politically powerful. They're not really going to have influence but they're going to raise a lot of money off of uh, people who are afraid of, of what might happen. And, you know, in this situation, certainly the Democrats in the state have added to that fear. They really, I mean, Democrats over the last couple of years here have really legitimized the 
the uh, the fear that they might literally come and try to take your guns away. Because, I mean, we saw Beto famously said exactly that. Right. They wanted to do that. Um, and these proposals in Virginia, uh, while they are not likely to become law at this point, are, are proposals that they put forth. Uh, you know, in good faith, as far as like, this is what we want. Um, and so once you say that, it's hard to to walk it back and say, well, we don't really want to confiscate your guns. We just want to register them. Um, because obviously the, the biggest critique of registration is always that it leads to confiscation. And if you're starting, as the Democrats did in Virginia, if you're starting at a point where you say, we want confiscation, and then you move from that point to say, oh, no, we just want registration. Well, I don't think a lot of people are, are going to be very forgiving and, and believe you and trust you on that point, you know? Right. <laughs> so you you pay attention to this issue better than, than most anyone I know across the nation, not just in Virginia. Uh, what are you seeing on the horizon that uh, Second Amendment supporters need to be concerned about? Well, you know, I think uh, state level stuff is always at this point in time is, is the most important um, just because the national level things are, are fairly well gridlocked with, uh, you know, divided government. Um, and so where you could actually see movement uh, on the, the issue of gun control is, is at the state level places like Washington, um, uh, Colorado, New Mexico, uh, Nevada are, are places where that's still, there's still a strong possibility that there could be new uh, gun laws passed in those those states. Whereas, you know, right now at the national level, you're not going to see anything one way or the other, most likely. Um, and then obviously the the 2020 election. I mean, whatever you think about the candidates, wherever you fall on it, they, there's going to be a very stark contrast on this particular issue for sure uh, between you know Donald Trump and whoever wins the Democratic primary. I mean, you know, there's certainly a possibility that after the primary, as is usually the case, um, you could see some moderation from the Democratic uh, candidate on guns. But right now, they are all, including, you know, the moderate candidates like Joe Biden, they are all um, very far left of where, say, President Obama was in 2012 on right. the issue and probably even left of where Hillary Clinton was in 2016. Um you know, they're they're all. I don't. I don't know that there's been a very strong condemnation from any of them on the idea of confiscation. Now they don't. They haven't all come out to support it outright like Beto uh, and Swalwell did, probably because those two really failed miserably after right. they moved to that position. But but uh, certainly where they are now, in a practical sense, is much further left on the issue than than where the party had been. You know, up until very recently. And, and I, I get the sense as well that the, the, the overriding positions of the democratic leadership are, are much further left and in line with the, the secular upper income white Democrats, but not necessarily where the Hispanic and black Democrats are. There, there seems to be even on, on gun control, a divide there in, in the polling, the, the, a lot of support in the African-American and Hispanic community for the second amendment that isn't reflective of the democratic party. Yeah, uh, I mean, you know, it's it's an interesting thing where the Democrats are right now on gun policy, I think, because they've really moved very quickly and very aggressively to the left on the issue. And it doesn't necessarily seem to be driven by anything substantial um, politically in terms of, like, some 
you know, major change in polling or uh, major change in grassroots support. You know, there was, uh, you know, a brief uptick in in protest uh, after with uh, March for Our Lives, but um, even that was mainly funded by uh, not by sort of grassroots uh, small donors, but by you know, I just had a story on this by six figure donations made up ninety five percent of the funding for that group. Uh, they were able to produce a very large protests, uh, you know, March of twenty eighteen. Um, but you know, as far as seeing like the issue become a real winner for them, you know, I don't know that there's a lot of evidence of that. There's you have the twenty eighteen midterms where you could, where I think that's the strongest case that the gun control side has that it didn't hurt the, their candidates as much as people might have assumed it would. Um, or like at least the sort of anti-Trump uh, fervor at the time was enough to overcome any sort of concerns about gun control. Right. And you could probably see that in Virginia's own elections, because Virginia is particularly poorly suited for, you know, a Trump-centric Republican Party because it's much it's becoming more and more uh, suburban uh, over the last several decades, and and that that's an area where he doesn't play very well, obviously, and uh, that probably takes precedent over perhaps the gun issue and that's maybe why you saw you know such an outpouring after the election but it didn't have the same impact during the election right um or maybe people just weren't they weren't thinking about that issue when they went to vote or didn't vote that makes sense. All right. So, Stephen, if people want to read your writings on this, and again, I, I, I will tell my audience, you're the one guy I, I regularly read on this, but uh, do some self-promotion here. Where can people check you out? Uh, you can always find all my reports at uh, freebeacon.com, F-R-E-E-B-E-A-C-O-N.com. Um, and I'm also, I'm also on uh, Twitter at Stephen Gutowski, S-T-E-P-H-E-N-G-U-T-O-W-S-K-I. So Great. find all my stuff there. Listen, thanks very much for taking time out to, to chat with me about this issue. I really do appreciate it. Absolutely. Absolutely. Thank you. Stephen Gutowski with the Washington Free Beacon. Again, go to freebeacon.com. Uh, Stephen is there every day writing about the gun issue. He is the one person on planet Earth uh, whose writings on this and reporting on this I really genuinely trust. He's gotten a heck of a lot of scoops out of the National Rifle Association, the stuff going on behind there. He was on the ground in Virginia. He's been at SHOT Show last week, uh, wore himself out there. Uh, we follow each other on social media. Great, great guy, great reporter on the Second Amendment issue. Also a trained NRA instructor as well. Uh, he knows how to shoot. He doesn't just report on it. He's like probably the only person I know in the media who reports on guns, who actually is a gun owner and Second Amendment advocate, um, which makes his reporting all the more compelling. He gets stories others don't even pay attention to because uh, they're actually anti-gun and he's not. Welcome. It is Eric Erickson here. The phone number is 877-97-ERIC 877-973-7425 uh, Thanks again to Stephen Gutowski um, for stopping by talking about the Second Amendment issue. You know, th this is one of my big concerns right now with these issues that we addressed, and he's way more diplomatic about it than me, but there are a number of these fly-by-night groups that have, have cropped up. They're running massive Facebook ads, doing all sorts of fundraising, uh, trying to raise money. The, the National Rifle Association has is not doing well right now. And they're essentially saying the NRA has collapsed. Give us your money and we'll defend the Second Amendment. And they're fly-by-night groups. You got to be really careful out there with these groups taking advantage of people uh, over their fears of, of Second Amendment repeal. But as, as we discussed and as I noted for you, a lot of the more radical provisions 
in a lot of the radical legislation that people were trying to pass in Virginia, it's not actually going to pass. Um, so there, there's not a, a reason for it. There are reasons to be concerned, but no reason to panic. Now, uh, let's get back into the impeachment stuff because this just happened a short time ago uh, on MSNBC. Willie Geist uh, talking to Joe Manchin about um, about calling Hunter Biden. And you on, on radio cannot see Willie Geist's face, which was priceless, but you can at least hear this interview. Is Hunter Biden a relevant witness, Senator? Uh, you know, I, I think so. I really do. I don't have a problem there because this is why we are where we are. Now, I think that he could clear himself of what I know and what I've heard, but being afraid to put anybody that might have pertinent information is wrong, no matter if you're a Democrat or Republican, and not go home and say, well, I protected one and was afraid. No, if it's relevant, then it should be there. Oh. Oh, the Democrats didn't want to hear this. Manchin, by the way, has said he may very well uh, be inclined to vote uh, for acquittal of the president. You know, if the Democrats can't get to 50 votes on a, on guilt for the president, that should bother them. If the Republicans hold the line on this, and, and I even, I'm, I'm still in the camp that Mitt Romney will vote to acquit the president. He may want to have witnesses. Uh, and frankly, I'm not opposed to them calling John Bolton. I don't think it's going to go the way the Democrats think it's going to go. Uh, but the Republicans are actually making a good case. And, and despite all the, the hemming and hawing and, and screaming from the Democrats about it, the Republicans have actually made some good points. The president's team has made some good points. Here's Jeffrey Tubin, not exactly a fan of the president, talking about this yesterday. I thought it was an effective uh, set of zingers, and uh, I bet the Republicans really enjoyed listening to it. Yeah, it was it was awkward because a lot of what these Democrats were saying then, and he specifically re included at least two of the House managers, Jerry Nadler and uh, Zoe Lofgren, uh, they say the opposite today. That's right. Um, you know, they, what they would say is that the facts were entirely different. Uh, but the idea that certainly uh, Nadler uh, said and, and Lofgren said that there shouldn't be a partisan impeachment, you know, is is a very legitimate point. And it is a point that the Republicans have raised effectively throughout this process, that uh, the uh, the Constitution, particularly because uh, there's a two thirds requirement in the Senate, um, effectively, but not literally, uh, requires more than just partisanship to uh, more than just a partisan effort uh, to throw a president out of office. Yeah, the partisan effort to throw the president out of office uh, again, uh, even polling in Maine, where the president is not popular and not expected to win, shows that uh, 60 percent of voters think that they should be the ones to make this decision in November. Diane Feinstein yesterday came out and said that uh, she should that we should let the voters decide in November. Now, her staff very quickly rushed to her Twitter account and said, no, no, didn't mean it. But let me play you some of the closing arguments from the president's team yesterday. Here's uh, Pat Cipollone uh, in his closing statement on behalf of the president. Overturning the last election and massively interfering with the upcoming one would cause serious and lasting damage to the people of the United States and to our great country. The Senate cannot allow this to happen. It is time for this to end here and now. So we urge the Senate to reject these articles of impeachment for all of the reasons we have given you. You know them all. 
I don't need to repeat them. They've repeatedly said over and over again, a quote from Benjamin Franklin, it's a republic if you can keep it. And every time I heard it, I said to myself, it's a republic if they let us keep it. And I have every confidence, every confidence in your wisdom. You will do the only thing you can do, what you must do, what the Constitution compels you to do. Reject these articles of impeachment for our country and for the American people. It will show that you put the Constitution above partisanship. It will show that we can come together on both sides of the aisle and end the era of impeachment for good. You know it should end. You know it should end. It will allow you all to spend all of your energy and all of your enormous talent and all of your resources on doing what the American people sent you here to do, to work together, to work with the president, to solve their problems. So this should end now as quickly as possible. That was Pat Sablonian in his closing argument on behalf of the president. Patrick Philbin also made a pretty persuasive case. Listen to, listen to this. And what we see in the House manager's charges and their definition of abuse of power is exactly antithetical to the framers' approach because their very premise for their abuse of power charge is that it is entirely based on subjective motive, not objective standards, not predefined offenses, but the president can do something that is perfectly lawful, perfectly within his authority, but if the real reason, as Professor Dershowitz pointed out, that's the language from their report, the reason in the president's mind is something that they ferret out and decide is wrong, that becomes impeachable. And that's exact, that's not a standard at all. It ends up being infinitely malleable. It does wind up being infinitely malleable. When we come back, what he said about Alexander Vindman, it's actually a, a pretty interesting uh, statement from him focused on Vindman and throwing Vindman's words back at the Democrats. Also, Hillary Clinton is thinking that, you know what, she still wants to beat Donald Trump. And remember yesterday I played you the Don Lemon segment uh, where they were ridiculing Trump voters? Well, he's kind of sort of apologized for it. Uh, The other two have not. And the GOP has already turned it into an ad that they're running on online. I got the audio for you when we come back. Hello and welcome. It is Eric Erickson here, the Eric Erickson Show across the state of Georgia, the Southeast, the nation, the internet. I am ubiquitous now. The phone number, if you want to be a part of the program, 877-97-ERIC, 877-973-7425. I'm going to be unprofessional for a moment. Y'all, I woke up at three o'clock this morning with a cold and I swear to you, I have had so much cold medicine this morning. My blood pressure is through the roof and and everything is spinning. So if if I suddenly, like, you don't hear me anymore, <laughs> I might have passed. I don't know. Man, it like once a year, and usually it happens in March, so maybe it'll happen twice a year this year. I woke wake up and I have the worst sore throat. It, it keeps me awake. It's and it, it has to do with the, the temperature change. You know, we, we're having this. It's been raining outside this morning and it's warming back up after being cold. And then I was in L.A. last week and I thought, oh, Lord, I was in Southern California. I've got the Wuhan flu. Um, nope. It's just it's it's this time of year. So 
if I sound really deep in my voice or like I'm I'm out in space, I probably am. And it is, I have taken so much sinus medication and, and pseudoephedrine and, and everything else. And, you know, just as a pet peeve, this is one of the reasons I dislike Diane Feinstein. Because uh, phenylephedrine, which is what you get in your over-the-counter over stuff now, it doesn't work. It's the pseudoephedrine that works. But you, they treat you like a crack dealer when you go in and try to buy the stuff that works. The phenylephedrine, it's, it's all psychosomatic. It doesn't actually work. Uh, you got to go get the actual real pseudoephed with the real pseudoephedrine. Uh, and that stuff works and you got to go in and you got to bring your driver's license. And if you buy too much, they're going to haul you off to jail. Cause I think you're a meth dealer. It's such garbage. Uh, it's such big government nanny statism, but there you have it. So that's my soapbox tirade. I, I want to play two clips before we move away from impeachment. And by the way, this afternoon, the state of play in Congress in the Senate is going to be, this is question and answer day in the Senate. The, the Republicans and the Democrats will each get to ask questions. They will submit their questions in writing to the chief justice, the chief justice, Justice will say this question comes from Senator so-and-so directed to House managers or to the President's Council or to both sides. He will instruct them to keep their answers succinct, and they will do the Q&A uh, and move on from there. Now, all of that being said, I want to play one clip I played at the end of the last segment, uh, and then the larger thing here with Patrick Philbin, one of the President's lawyers. And what we see in the House managers' charges and their definition of abuse of power is exactly antithetical to the framers' approach because their very premise for their abuse of power charge is that it is entirely based on subjective motive, not objective standards, not predefined offenses, but the president can do something that is perfectly lawful, perfectly within his authority, but if the real reason, as Professor Dershowitz pointed out, that's the language from their report, the reason in the president's mind is something that they ferret out and decide is wrong, that becomes impeachable. And that's exact, that's not a standard at all. It ends up being infinitely malleable. Now, here's what he said about Alexander Vidman related to that infinitely malleable standard. The House managers made this accusation there was something nefarious going on. But let's see what the witnesses actually had to say. Lieutenant Colonel Alexander Vindman, and remember, Lieutenant Colonel Vindman is the person who was listening in on the call and who raised a concern, the only person who went and raised a concern with NSC lawyers that he, saw, he thought there was something improper, something wrong with the call. Even though he later conceded under cross-examination it was really a policy concern, but he thought there was something wrong. And he had to say that he did not think he said, so I do not think there was malicious intent or anything of that nature to cover anything up. He's the one who went and talked to the lawyers. He's the one whose complaint spurred the idea that, wait, there might be something that's really sensitive here. We should make sure that this is not going to leak. He thought there was nothing covering it up. His boss, Senior Director Tim Morrison, had similar testimony. So to the best of your knowledge, there's no malicious intent in, in moving the transcript to the compartment and server? Correct. And the idea that there was some sort of cover-up is further destroyed by the simple fact that everyone who as part of their jobs needed access to that transcript still had access to it, including Lieutenant Colonel Vindman. Right? So the person who raises a complaint still has access to the transcript the entire time. 
Now, that's a point that I think has really gotten missed by a lot of the media, because if you read a lot of the statements that are out there about uh, the the transcript going into the secure server, it was to hide it so no one could get it back. And yet uh, what the White House counsel accurately points out, and he's telling the truth here, is that actually anyone who needed the transcript could still get the transcript. It wasn't ferreted away so no one could get it. It was just put into this secure server. And, and Vinman himself raised complaints, and the complaints were looked at, and, and everybody moved on. And Tim Morrison, you heard the audio uh, of the Morrison interview there, that uh, Morrison actually didn't think there was anything nefarious. Many of these people complained about the White House holding the money up. None of them thought there was anything nefarious going on, and, and that was persuasive to Republicans, frankly. And it's the Republican votes that the president needs to be needs to persuade. And he did. I think he did. And, I, you know, I agree with Tom Cotton that we're going to move on from this and focus on other things and impeachment. We're going to forget in a couple of weeks that it happened. In fact, one of the things we're going to probably focus on is the coronavirus uh, that continues to spread. Uh, 200 Americans were actually landed in Anchorage, Alaska last night from Wuhan, China. Uh, the uh, Americans were all evacuated by the government. They're being treated in a isolation facility in Anchorage before going on to Los Angeles uh, because we want to make sure they're not bringing the 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 Wuhan flu here, but we wanted to get them out of the country in case they don't have it uh, so they don't get sick. Uh, Tom Cotton is asking for restrictions on travel from China. He was on Fox News. I played the clip earlier in the show. I want to replay it and get to this larger point that in two weeks, impeachment's going to be wrapped up. And the Democrats will still make a big deal out of it, but most people, I think, are going to move on from it. And there will be other things for people to complain about. So, Tucker, the Chinese government has a history of dishonesty and incompetence, not yes. only in general, but specifically related to infectious diseases. Uh, look at what happened with SARS in 2003. China is not acting right now like a government that has control of this outbreak. As you mentioned, right. Hong Kong has slashed travel from the mainland. China currently has more than 50 million of its own people in quarantine. That is more than the population of our West Coast combined. And China has canceled school indefinitely. No matter what they say, China's history and more importantly, their actions in the last few days tell us that this is a severe outbreak that they do not have close to getting under control yet. They don't. And in fact, most experts now think they are uh, downplaying the numbers. Most people actually think that uh, China has underestimated the number of infections, that they're scrambling to shut down cities in China and prevent travel within the country is a pretty big red flag that they actually think there's a bigger outbreak. And it is now spreading across the globe. There are now multiple reports of people in Washington, D.C., who came from China who may have it, which is another reason that uh, Tom Cotton wants to restrict travel to and from China. And we will see, you know, there's this report in Axios. If you haven't heard Apple yesterday, uh, it came out with massive earnings. Uh, it basically, you know, Apple's wearables division, Apple's, uh, their, what do you call them? The, the, the AirPods, I got the AirPods and I got the AirPods Pro. Uh, they're, they're actually, if you're thinking of getting wireless headphones and, you, and you're a Mac, even if you're not, because they work on Bluetooth, the, the, the AirPods Pro are phenomenal. But between the watches and the, the, the AirPods, Apple's wearables division, are watches and headphones. If you were to break that company apart from Apple, it would be a Fortune 500 company. 
If you were to separate out the Mac and iPad division from the iPhone division, the iPhone division would be a Fortune 500 company. The Macs and iPads would be a Fortune 500 company. And the wearables would be a Fortune 500 company, which is impressive. Now, Axios has this report. China figured prominently throughout Apple's earnings report on Tuesday, helping fuel the company's record holiday quarter and also playing a role in the uncertainty hanging over the current quarter. Apple is the latest company to flag the coronavirus outbreak as harming near-term business. A year after weakness in greater China prompted an earnings warning, Apple returned to growth in the region. It saw double-digit growth in sales of the iPhone and its services and its wearables, but... China was also the source of caution. The company's $63 billion to $67 billion revenue outlook for the current quarter, though better than some had forecast, had a wider range due to uncertainty over the coronavirus. Apple's had to close one of its stores in China, while third-party retailers have closed distribution points and reduced the operating hours. Also, traffic is down outside Wuhan. Some suppliers are based around Wuhan, thought to be ground zero for the outbreak, though Apple said it has other sources for those components. Factories in China are starting back up later than normal following the Lunar New Year holiday, with production expected to resume February 10th. The bottom line is it's too soon to say how great the human impact of the outbreak will be, but it's a major source of economic risk. It is. And, and where do we stand right now? Here are confirmed cases of the coronavirus. Uh, 5,970 in China, but then again, it's China, so we, we don't know about the reporting there. There are 14 in Thailand, 8 in Hong Kong, 8 in Taiwan, 7 in Japan, 7 in Macau, 7 in Malaysia, 7 in Singapore, 5 in Australia, 5 in the U.S., 4 in France, 4 in Germany, 4 in South Korea, 2 in Canada, 2 in Vietnam, 1 in Cambodia, 1 in Nepal, and 1 in Sri Lanka. That's where we are right now. Um, that being said, uh, there were 5,327 cases of SARS during that outbreak, and now we've exceeded that with this. Uh, but uh, only th 348 people died from SARS, and only 132 people have died from this. This is a less fatal illness than SARS, and in fact, more people will be expected to die this year of the flu than of this coronavirus. But what we're seeing with the coronavirus is it has jumped rapidly from animals to people. The consensus now, by the way, is that the coronavirus came from bats, uh, like SARS. The SARS came from bats. Uh, what, what's the um, uh, the hantavirus they now believe came from bats? There was another coronavirus recently. Oh, um, the bird flu, I think. It was actually the bird flu they think actually came from bats originally, uh, which is a coronavirus, even though it's a bird, it, it spread from bats to birds to people. Um, and so it's the bird flu because it spread from the birds to the people, even though the birds got it from the bats. Um, so they're now thinking that at this seafood outlet, basically think of it as a farmer's market, but for seafood in inland China and Wuhan along the Yangtze River, they also sold other exotic animals, snakes and other things to eat. And the original reports were that this may have jumped from snakes to people, but it's now looking more and more like it actually jumped from bats to people, uh, which is some concern. And I think we're going to be talking about the coronavirus in two weeks, and we're not going to be talking about impeachment. We're going to be talking about so many other things and not talking about impeachment. The Democrats put all sorts of intellectual capital in this. They've deprived some of their candidates of time on the campaign trail and in response. And by the way, Joe Biden is not capitalizing on this at all, which is somewhat bizarre. You would think Joe Biden would be out there seriously capitalizing on the fact that Elizabeth Warren and Bernie Sanders can't compete on the campaign trail right now, and he's not. But there's also something else we need to talk about. When we come back, we actually need to talk about a special election for a state house seat in Texas. 
And you're wondering, wait a second, isn't this a Georgia show? Well, I am. In, I want to be in Texas. I want to be everywhere with this show. But right now we're in Georgia. So why am I talking about a Texas special election for a state house seat on a radio station that's only broadcast in the state of Georgia? You're going to want to listen to this. I'll explain why when we come back. I will be sending out a recipe later if you want it. The recipe will be a pizza recipe. You can text a uh, recipe to 33777 if you like. Uh, one thing that you need to consider doing, though, is... Uh, you, you need to, ooh, this just happened. We'll, we'll get to that. You need to text the word ARMY to 33777. And, and the reason you need to text ARMY to 33777 is what will happen is you're going to get a link back. And that link will connect you to your state representative in the House here in Georgia and tell them to kill the primary legislation uh, the, that the Democrats have written with the Speaker of the House to try to give the Democrats an electoral advantage in the special election. It, it is a bad piece of legislation. Uh, it is being hijacked uh, by Democrats and the Speaker of the House to help them. And it needs to be killed. The governor is going to wind up vetoing it probably, but it shouldn't get through the House representatives. So text the word army to 33777 now this just happened uh president trump just gave a shout out to kelly leffler uh along with every other u.s senator in the crowd uh at the usmca signing she says congratulations kelly they really like you a lot that's what the word is um this comes right after doug collins uh, is um, Doug Collins he announces that he's going to run, and here comes the president outside at the USMCA signing ceremony, and he is giving shout-outs to Kelly Leffler uh, in the crowd. That's a big, big deal, and it is going to be a huge thing for the, uh, the Leffler campaign moving forward as Doug Collins tries to claim he's the Republican candidate for Trump. If Trump comes out for Kelly Leffler, it's over for Doug Collins. Because if the president says, uh, Kelly's legit and she'll stick with me, then he, Doug Collins has nowhere to go. He's trying to run to be the Trump candidate, and that's going to hurt him. Now, as I mentioned before, I actually want to focus on a state house race in Texas, which for a lot of you makes no sense, but bear with me here. This is a suburban house seat, uh, House District 28. It is outside of Houston. President Trump won this state house seat in 2016 by 10 points. In 2018, Beto O'Rourke only lost it by three percentage points. So you go from a Trump win, it's R plus 10, to a Cruz win that is R plus 3. It's in a suburban area that demographically is shifting to the Democrats, it looked like this could be a pickup for the Democrats. The Democrats were more mobilized. The Democrats had more energy. The Democrats were more engaged, and the Democrats poured in more money. And Beto O'Rourke essentially moved into the district. And in moving into the district, he decided that uh, he would knock on doors to try to help the Democrat. And he... Um, it, it didn't work for Beto O'Rourke. It didn't work well for him at all, and they lost the district. Elizabeth Warren campaigned. Joe Biden campaigned. 
Amy Klobuchar campaign, Bernie Sanders campaign, uh, Joe Biden, Elizabeth Warren in particular, endorsed the candidate and flooded the area with support trying to mobilize Democratic voters. They they um, they did everything they could to try to get this race into Democratic hands, and it didn't work out for them at all. Um, in fact, if anything, it blew up in their face. They spent over a million dollars. One outside Democratic group spent $400,000 money that they were going to spend in other state legislative districts, and they still lost. The Republican picked it up. Not only did the Republican pick it up, but he picked it up with 58% of the vote, 58 to 42 this is one of the seats the Democrats had to win to take back the, the Texas legislature. And the reason I'm talking about it here in Georgia is because I still think there are going to be a number of seats in the suburban Atlanta area that the Democrats wind up losing that they picked up in 2018. This is a seat, uh, take Mary Robichaux. For those of you outside the Atlanta area, this is the Roswell, Georgia area. Betty Price, Tom Price's wife held the seat. She's running again against Mary Robichaux. In 2018, that's one of the districts where there was a, a lot of strength for the Democrats in the suburban metro Atlanta area, and they went for a person like Mary Robichaux over Betty Price. She lost the seat, but it's also one of those things where the Republican voters in that area did not turn out overwhelmingly. Remember, Brian Kemp mobilized people in the rural and ex-urban areas. It was the suburban and urban areas where the RNC said they would mobilize people, and they didn't. And so a lot of Republicans might have gone to the polls, otherwise did not go to the polls, and it gave the Democrats an advantage. Well, guess what? This is a presidential election year. Those Republicans who didn't turn out in 2018 are going to turn out in 2020 to vote for Trump, and they'll stick around. Republicans tend to go down ballot more than Democrats go down ballot, so they'll hit these races, and you may win seats back like this Mary Robichaux district uh, where she barely won. There are several other seats where they may win, and the warning sign for the Democrats is the special election in Texas where Beto O'Rourke got very, very close. They poured in tons of money. They did serious micro-targeting. They drove out the Democrats as maximally as they could, and it still didn't work for them. The narrative in the media has been now for some time that Texas and Georgia are trending to the Democrats. And by trending to the Democrats, uh, they are, come 2020, going to be mobilized, organized, and ready for action. In Georgia, you've got Stacey Abrams working. In Texas, you've got the, the Texas Progress, to, uh, the battleground Texas people working. They're identifying swing voters. They're identifying Democratic voters. And they're trying to mobilize them to get out to vote. And it didn't work for them. Despite all the data, despite all the effort, despite all the trying, it didn't work for them. And that should be a warning sign to Democrats here in Georgia that you're believing your media and the media is not really true when it comes to turning Georgia to the Democrats. It is Eric Erickson here. The Eric Erickson Show across the state of Georgia. The phone number is 877-97-ERIC, 877-973-7425. If you are just tuning in, President Trump gave a shout out to Kelly Leffler uh, saying, congratulations, Kelly. They really like you a lot. That's what the word is. The National Republican Senatorial Committee uh, blowing this up pretty, pretty big here um, just a few minutes ago out on social media, pushing it out very hard, uh, making sure everybody knows what the president said about Kelly Leffler. Kelly Loeffler. Kelly, congratulations, Kelly. Really great. They already like you a lot. That's what the word is. 
making sure they're circulating. That comes on the heels of the Doug Collins um, announcement this morning on Fox that he is running for president. Uh, Putting it on Fox and Friends, in addition to trying to get the president's eye, also gets the eye of conservative activists around the country and uh, gets them to engage uh, with him and fundraise. He's got his fundraising portal up and going right now. Um, (laughs) We don't need to dwell any longer on on this issue I don't think today I'm happy to have them both on I don't know her I like Doug tremendously I don't think he should be doing this I think it's going to badly fracture the Republican Party uh, but uh, we will see you know what else is going to badly fracture parties uh, oh by the way before I get there I got a text during the commercial break uh, from a buddy who's listening in Texas and said to, I need to point out that you know that special election in Texas where the Democrats were going to do it and they mobilized highest turnout ever in a special election in Texas and advantage was to the Republicans. So uh, don't believe this turnout narrative helping the Democrats and whatnot. Now, uh, David Drucker over at the Washington examiner has a piece worth considering on the presidential race and uh, the Bernie Sanders situation and never Trumpers. Let me read you part of this. The rise of socialist Bernie Sanders is frustrating never-Trump Republicans who are hoping the Democratic Party nominates a consensus center-left presidential candidate they are comfortable supporting in November. If Sanders is the Democratic nominee, many will sit out the election and be deprived of an opportunity of voting against President Trump. Sanders is surging days before the Iowa caucuses and a couple of weeks before the New Hampshire primary, leaving Republican operatives avowedly opposed to Trump, worried and perplexed. Most are convinced swing voters in battleground states would reject Sanders, paving the way for Trump's reelection. They are also convinced the Vermont Senator 78 is simply too liberal to earn their vote. With a Sanders nomination, never-Trump Republicans are unsure of what comes next. I don't know where the anti-Trump movement goes from here, says Jennifer Horn, a never-Trump Republican and former New Hampshire GOP chairwoman who is affiliated with the Lincoln Project, a group of anti-Trump Republicans who have pressured Republican senators to support impeachment. It's a really tough question, added political strategist Sarah Longwell, a never-Trump Republican at the center of an unsuccessful effort to recruit a formidable candidate to challenge the president in 2020. Anti-Trump Republicans are holding out hope for Joe Biden, who's 77. The former vice president is a Democrat they can embrace, they said, liberal but not too far left and moderate in tone. Biden polls well against Trump and leads the Democratic field nationally. He now trails a climbing Sanders in the February 3rd Iowa caucuses and the February 11th New Hampshire primary. But he leads in the other critical early states and is better positioned to win the party's crown than other contenders they could stomach, like Buttigieg, Klobuchar, and Mike Bloomberg. If if Biden wins the nomination, many never-Trump Republicans are prepared to work on his behalf to attract disaffected voters on the right just like them. But never-Trump Republicans have limits. Philosophically conservative and not wanting to be perceived as otherwise, they view Sanders' self-professed democratic socialism as equally problematic and might skip 2020 altogether. It's asking a lot from people on the center right or in the old Reagan wing of the GOP to go full Sanders in November, said Jerry Taylor, who runs the Niskanen Center uh, Washington think tank that's become a hub of never-Trump community. Taylor does plan to support Sanders in the general election if the senator wins the Democratic nomination, but described himself and others like him as the exception to the rule. So they will go with a Democratic socialist, some of them, just not enough of them. Listen, I'm I, I gotta I gotta tell you that 
I may have to just write this book. I've been wanting to write this book on on how I got from Never Trump to Yale, support him in 2020. And a lot of it does have to do with the Democrats. A, a portion of it has to do with his own record. The president's actually been far better than I ever expected him to be. Uh, he's delivered in ways I didn't expect him to deliver. He's kept a lot of promises I never expected him to. And then you've got the Democratic Party going full left. It's, it's surprising to see some of these people who hate the president so much and say they're conservative that they would go vote for a Democratic socialist. They would prefer four years of a commie in the White House than Donald Trump, and that actually speaks poorly of them, I think. I get that there are people on the right who will never vote for Donald Trump. I, I do. And I'm, I'm sympathetic to him. I, I'm not there. I will vote for him in 2020. But but I understand. I, I, I have some very good friends of mine who are like, I just can't vote for this guy. And I get it. I do. But Bernie Sanders is a problem for the Democrats uh, because it's not just these people who won't go vote. There are a lot of moderate Democrats who are not going to go vote for Bernie Sanders. They will take a pox on both their houses' view. And this shows up in the polling. Uh, black voters in particular are, are deeply skeptical of Bernie Sanders. Hispanic voters are deeply skeptical of Bernie Sanders. Some of them will rally around the flag if Bernie's the nominee. But the good news for the Democrats, and there is good news for the Democrats, we, we do need to be honest about, uh, the odds are that Joe Biden is still the Democratic nominee. Even if Joe Biden loses out in the first couple of races in Iowa and New Hampshire, the odds are Joe Biden still becomes the Democratic nominee. And the reason is because of black voters and Hispanic voters. When the race shifts from Iowa and New Hampshire, it will cut over to Nevada. And in Nevada, Hispanic voters overwhelmingly support Joe Biden. And then it will shift back to the East Coast, to South Carolina. And South Carolina, overwhelmingly, uh, is a Joe Biden state. Black voters in South Carolina by 55%, I think, overwhelmingly. Overwhelmingly, they like uh, Joe Biden, and that's going to help him. Now, I want to get away from the Democratic primary here real quick and get to the president. The president's been speaking on the White House lawn. I want to play you some of the audio. This is about the USMCA. Hogan Gidley was here in the first hour to talk about it, some of the major differences between it and NAFTA. The president's got a bunch of people standing behind him at the White House wearing hard hats. He and the vice president are there. He gave a shout-out a short time ago to Kelly Loeffler, and uh, this is some of what he had to say. We're expected to rise by at least 50% an egg export could increase by 500%. Where is the Canadian folks? Where are they? You guys did a good job on us before this deal, I'll tell you. That's, Canada was very tough, but they're good. They're our friends, so we appreciate it. Very importantly, Canada will finally give fair treatment to American-grown wheat. The USMCA is also a massive win for American manufacturers and auto workers. Under NAFTA, companies were given huge incentives to produce cars in foreign countries and ship them to America tax-free. No tax, no nothing. We lost our jobs, we closed our factories, and other countries built our cars. But we've changed that, and we're now setting records. The USMCA closes these terrible loopholes and includes strong provisions to ensure that new cars are fashioned by American hands. That's a fancy word of saying built and manufactured with American labor. We have. That was part of the president's uh, speech on the White House lawn just a few minutes ago, actually. He also had this to say about NAFTA. One of them, 
Every one of them, they're fantastic. They are fantastic. Continues on from where he just and was. And we appreciate it very much. You've done a great job. Getting good credits for what you're doing, and we really appreciate it. Really fantastic. After NAFTA's adoption more than 25 years ago, the United States lost nearly one-fourth of all of its manufacturing jobs, including more than one in five vehicle manufacturing jobs. Think of that. One in five jobs lost so needlessly. Thousands of factories were shuttered. Millions of manufacturing jobs were destroyed. And entire communities were devastated from Ohio to Pennsylvania, Michigan to Maine, and California to North Carolina, devastated. Two decades of politicians ran for office vowing to replace the NAFTA. And this was a catastrophe, the NAFTA catastrophe. Yet once elected, they never even tried. They never even gave it a shot. They sold out. But I'm not like those other politicians, I guess in many ways. I keep my promises and I'm fighting for the American worker. And we're all fighting for the American worker. Everybody here is fighting for the American worker. This agreement is a tremendous breakthrough for American agriculture. Canada will finally provide greater access for American dairy. Canada's opening up. It will grow annual exports to our neighbors by an estimated $315 million. Poultry exports to Canada. Ex Poultry exports will go up. Dairy exports will go up. Wheat exports will go up, go up to Canada. Uh, and, and those are all good for farmers. In fact, one of the things that um, one of the things that the Democrats are focused on is uh, the subsidies the president's been paying to farmers. Democrats don't want to blast that, but they're trying to convince farmers that they're getting a raw deal from the government. The USMCA was designed in part to address those concerns. The Democrats kind of had to let it go through because they liked some of the other stuff. The union activists very much like parts of the USMCA, and, and the president is going to capitalize all, on all of this. Now, while that's happening, if it's a little, if I'm jumping around here, there's a lot of stuff that that with these interviews this morning and other stuff going on, I, I wanted to get to, um, but I, I needed to play you part of the president's speech here because this gives the president something else to talk about on the campaign trail. Now that the USMCA has been signed, it's a reminder that life is going on in, in the face of impeachment, and that gets me back to Bernie Sanders where the Democrats continue to freak out about this, and they've got a brutal, brutal ad that is now circulating against Bernie Sanders in Iowa. And this just went online. I am told that there actually is money behind this ad. You know, I, so there's an ad out from this Lincoln Project group. So it's it's a left-wing group of never-Trumpers designed to stop the president. And, and by the way, I, I'm friends with some of the people involved here, but the group overwhelmingly is uh, left of center, uh, socially liberal. Many of them will go for a Democrat because they don't even care about abortion. And but they're not actually putting any money in their ads. They're getting played on CNN, the attacks on Susan Collins and the like getting played on CNN, uh, but they're not actually getting played in districts that matter. The Bernie Sanders ad, however, is up in Iowa and in New Hampshire. The most important thing is we have to be Trump. We've seen the damage that Trump and the Republican Congress have done. I doubt if Bernie Sanders can beat Trump. I like Bernie. I think he has great ideas. But Michigan, Pennsylvania, Iowa, they're just not going to vote for a socialist. I do have some concerns about Bernie Sanders' health, considering the fact that he did have a heart attack. I think it's very important that the Democrats nominate somebody that can beat Trump. I don't feel as though Bernie Sanders would do well against Donald Trump. I just don't think Bernie can beat Trump. DMFI PAC is responsible for the content of this advertising. 
support a Democrat who can beat Trump. That's the that is the ad tagline. Meanwhile, on the Republican side, I played you the Don Lemon clip the other day. The GOP has taken the Don Lemon uh, advertiser, the Don Lemon clip where he's laughing at Rick Wilson ridiculing Republican voters and the New York Times columnist joins in ridiculing Trump voters. The GOP has taken that and they've turned it into an ad. Let me play this for you now. Donald Trump couldn't find Ukraine on a map if you had the letter U and a picture of an actual physical crane (laughs) next to it. He knows that this is, you know, an an administration defined by ignorance of the world. You can put half of Trump supporters into what I call the basket of deplorables. And so that's partly him playing to their base. Anyone who supported this president is, at best, uh, looking the other way on racism. You know, the the credulous boomer rube demo that backs Donald Trump um, that that wants to think that that, that Donald Trump's a smart one and they're, oh, y'all, y'all elitists are them. Trump always loves the the low information guy. You elitists with your geography and your maps. Racism across the country because that, that's his base. Your math, you're reading. <laughs> yeah, you're reading. You know, your geography. Got all those clips together, and at the end, it, it ends in text. Uh, prove them wrong. Go vote for Trump. Uh, it, it really, you know, when I was on Bill Maher's show on Friday night, one of the things that he says over and over and over again is disagree with these people, and you can hate the president, but don't hate the president's voters. Uh, and and he tries to now, now he some he goes after some segments of the Trump base, but uh, by and large you won't find a guy like Bill Maher who is on HBO, has a progressive audience, is a progressive, and hates the president. You won't find him routinely attacking Donald Trump's voters. What's surprising is on CNN and elsewhere, you'll find people routinely attacking the president's voters as hicks and rubes and racists and bigots and and know-nothings and, and uneducated and, and, and dumb and on and on it goes. And Republicans now capitalizing on that with Trump's voters uh, to prove them wrong, turn out, realize these people don't like you. They're elitist snobs. I've seen a lot of people referring to this this encounter on CNN as, as snobs. Don Lemon came out and, and quasi-apologized for it. I won't say he actually apologized for it. He, he, he tried to dance around it. The other two have not. Um, and it's, it's blown up on him now. It, it inarguably is becoming an issue. It got way more coverage by Republicans circulating this, the president himself circulating the clip, to voters pointing out that, that these people really hate you. It's going to have a real impact uh, on some of these voters. Listen, I, I know people who really dislike the president. And I know a good portion of them are going to vote for the president. They're going to vote for the president because as much as they don't like the president, they realize the other side hates them. And it's stuff like these antics on Don Lemon that reinforce that. And the Democrats want to come for their way of life. The, the Democrats want to undermine them. Uh, this is going to be a, a, a pretty problematic issue for the Democrats overall moving forward when, in fact, uh, they show and their voters show and, and their media talking heads show great contempt for voters. I mean, imagine, I still think Don, uh, Joe Biden is going to be the Democratic nominee. I, I really do. But can you imagine Bernie Sanders, the socialist, is the Democratic nominee, and essentially uh, you've got the media coming out guilting people into voting for Bernie Sanders? That's going to end very badly 
If it's not Joe Biden, it's going to be Bernie Sanders. And Bernie Sanders, there are enough people that say, oh, well, we can't. I mean, we didn't think Donald Trump was going to get elected. Surely uh, surely Bernie Sanders could get elected. Yeah, but, you know, here's the thing. Ultimately, Donald Trump's administration is not that far out of line with the standard Republican administration. His behavior is out of line, but his policies are not. Bernie Sanders' policies are even out of line with the Obama administration's policies. And that's going to matter to a lot more people than the Democrats and the press seem to think. Can I confess to feeling a little bad for Beto O'Rourke? How old is Beto O'Rourke? He's not that much older than me. Or is he? Yeah, he's he's what? Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. He's, he's what, three, four years older than me? Yeah, four years older than me. And it, it's sad to see somebody like that going through a midlife crisis. He has wandered aimlessly. He got elected. He was a mayor. He got elected to Congress. He ran for the Senate, and he made the most fatal mistake. And this is a mistake that the Democrats seem to be replicating this year. He believed his own hype. Beto O'Rourke believed uh, that he really was the 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 savior of the Democratic Party. He he believed that he was the second coming of Barack Obama. And he poured his heart and soul into helping this candidate in the special election in Texas after dropping out of a presidential campaign where he failed to get traction, had this glowing Vanity Fair profile, and then they all turned on him. Why are we going to let a white guy run for president? Remember, Beto O'Rourke would go around on the campaign trail and he would say, yeah, we need to to get uh, minority and female candidates elected. And the media would ask him, well, then why are you running for president when there are minority and female candidates running? And he didn't have an answer for it. And he couldn't believe the media would ask him these things. He, he, he believed the hype and it got him into trouble. And he poured his energy into this special election house district, uh, highest turnout of all time in a special election in Texas. And they lost, they lost. He believed the hype. And it's what the Democrats are doing nationwide. Uh, people hate Donald Trump. They, they believe the polling, but the polling can be skewed to to major urban areas. Uh, they, they think that uh, Donald Trump is guaranteed to lose. You know the easiest way to get Donald Trump reelected is to be convinced he's going to lose. And you got Bernie Sanders out there right now. You've got a bunch of young reporters. It's like Elizabeth Warren, actually. Elizabeth Warren is probably a better example. Uh, so much of the media has tried to make Elizabeth Warren happen as a candidate, and it, she's not a good candidate. Uh, she may be a very fine person, although I hear she's not actually even that, but she's not a good candidate on the campaign trail, and she has a habit of exaggerating, and that exaggeration gets her into trouble, and the media is loath to call her out on it. They're only focused on calling the president out on it, but in so not doing, uh, they open her up to hypocrisy charges and the media up to hypocrisy charges by the other people running against her in the Democratic primary. Joe Biden in particular has taken particular advantage of this hypocrisy and calling out the media for protecting Elizabeth Warren. It's just a fascinating dynamic to watch. Members of the Democratic Party believe the press. It is as much as I complain about the press being out to get the Republicans, and it's true. There is a real bias in the media. It is a narrative bias that focuses on good government is true, progressive values are good, and that then translates into a bias for the Democratic Party. It's the narrative that's more important than the party, though. You need to understand that. But all of it works to the Democrats' advantage, and it also works to Republicans' advantage to the degree that we understand the media is out to get us. 
And if anything, the media is more honest with us than with the Democrats. The Democrats believe the press. The Democrats believe the headlines. The Democrats believe the the glowing adoration from the press, like Beto O'Rourke did, thought everybody was in love with him because the Vanity Fair in New York Times was, and it didn't work out for him. And that's going to be a problem for the Democrats in 2020 as they try to assess reality. They've got a reality distortion field around them the Republicans don't have.